Praise God. Thank you guys for coming back. I know it's a long day. If you've got a sheet, don't worry if you haven't, but, but you will need one. Um, if you don't have one with you, you can get one before you go tonight. What you see on the sheet will be on the screen anyway. When I... Christians can often get the attitude that everything that we get in life or everything we get in the church, we're going to be spoon-fed, right? That there's going to be, you know, no work on our part involved. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look at me a minute. Some of the most crucial things that you need to know, you will not be spoon-fed. You're going to have to fight for, right? The real truths. God's people perish for lack of knowledge. And if you think you can sit there year on year passively, and you're, you're going to end up in the right place. You're, I mean, you must be kidding yourself. Some of these truths you have to wrestle with, fight for. And there's nothing more, more specific than end times with regards to this. So I encourage you, in Proverbs it says, labor for it, fight for it as for silver and gold. And only then are we actually going to be anywhere near having our finger on the pulse of the days in which you live. You have been trusted by God to be an end times believer. You. Those of you who are born again and live in this age, you have been trusted by God. That's a very special trust, a bit similar to the birth of the church, the apostolic age, those who lived and walked in that generation. What a responsibility to walk alongside Jesus Christ. And likewise, you who live in these last days, what an awesome responsibility is upon your shoulders. And I warn you, friends, it's going to take work, academic work, study work, like you've never done before. And so we should be. Do you remember Stephen when they went to stone him? Remember? He was able, there with the stones ready. Let me just say one thing. And Stephen was able to recount all of the history of God's people right off the top of his head. Amen. He knew where he'd come from. And so we should be in the last days. You should know this end time studies like the back of your hand and then pass them on to your children, to your neighbors, to your friends. And I'm quite shocked by even what's happened here in the two services we've had already today. I'm quite shocked. I'm quite shocked that you're shocked. God help us. Why are you shocked? I mean, you've got a Bible, haven't you? Why are you shocked? What have you been studying? What have you been, you know, is it all just Sunday after Sunday or what? This is crucial. When I got saved, I was in a very good church. And I started, to, they were actually studying end times. But I suddenly realized, you know, right then at the beginning of my Christian life, there ain't no way that I'm ever going to get this sitting in church for half an hour a week on Sunday or something. I'm never going to understand it. Right? I'm going to go all through my life and not understand the book of Revelation, which is a complex book. But that would be crazy. So did you know what I did? I got a load of books, got a load of tapes on end times. I was living in a bungalow at the time. And I went in on Monday, Monday morning. And I closed the curtains <laughs> of my office. And I sat down. I said, right, I'm not shifting until I get some idea what the book of Revelation is about. All day Monday, all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, all day Thursday, all day Friday. And it began, the, the book began to open up to me. 
And I suddenly realized some of the mistakes that the church that I was in was making. It was like they were, you know, if you go to do a jigsaw puzzle. Well, I mean, it really is a bit like that with the book of Revelation. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that someone comes up and they toss the bits out on a table. But they walk off with the picture. And you never get to see what you're supposed to be putting together. And so most Christians open it up and say, I can't understand that. What's the point? And so they don't even bother. And I realized as I started to study the book, I need to know the big picture. And that's what the first message in this series was all about. Seeing how the gospel had gone right around the world and as we live is returning onto the shores of Jerusalem like never before. One of the signs that the return of Christ is imminent. As you start to read through the book of Revelation, it's not in chronological order. So that's the next problem you hit. You start to read it, and the Apostle John, it's like no other book in the Bible. You know that? All the books in the New Testament written in Greek, the Greek is excellent. The book of Revelation is, is a mess, right? The Greek in the Bible, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well written. Not so the book of Revelation. And do you know why? Because John, 17 times, it's a letter from Jesus Christ. And, the, you know, God speaks to him and says, write it down. And John just starts to write. And he's writing this end times prophecy. 17 times, the, the, the Spirit says to him, keep writing. Keep writing. And then when he gets to the last chapter, remember what God said to him? Now, seal the book and don't touch it. Don't alter a word. You see? It's the only letter actually in your Bible from Jesus Christ. Right? All the rest are from Peter and Paul and John and all that. But Jesus has written us a letter about the most important thing, the last days, the end times. But as I say, it's all higgledy-piggledy. It's all over the place. And that's part judgment, you know. We have to decipher that and look at it. It's a bit like a news bulletin, you know, on CNN or something. You know, when you see a news bulletin, somebody's made a documentary about history. Say about wars over history. And say they start by showing you the Iraq war. And then they flip and they go to Roman soldiers. And then they flip and they go to, you know, whatever, Second World War. And then they go back to Roman soldiers. You would understand it because you would recognize Roman armor. You would recognize that, you know, all the different scenes. But the book of Revelation is like that. John sees a vision and he's told to write down exactly what he sees. And he sees almost like a documentary of end times. But we struggle to understand that and interpret that. Well, up until now, we've struggled extensively. Wow, have things changed in the last few years? My, oh my. Things have totally changed, you know. As I mentioned in the first week, we used to look at this subject with a large degree of conjecture and hypothesis. That's all gone. We don't need it anymore. We don't need it anymore. Now all you've got to do is look at the news. Because the very things that we were guessing are now plain to see for those who would see. Plain to see. But as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days. When people are ignorant, apathetic about the things of God. Not aware that Christ is right at your door. Not aware. And so I find it to be today. Just like that. Just as God said it would be. You would think when you brought this to the church that there would be a great response. Well, I'm sorry to say, folks. Talking about the majority, that's not what you say. So what's the picture on the jigsaw puzzle box then? That's it. It's a chronology. 
That's the picture that we need to get a hold of, the order of end times events. And we've covered the first four already. What does Jesus say happens in these last days? Well, he said there would be a generation in which there would be plagues and wars and famines. And in that same generation, we would see the conclusion of the gospel of the kingdom having gone right around the world. Amen. It's happened. He said in that generation, the hearts of the Jews would see, you would see that they would be softened. Amen. Benjamin Netanyahu, ex-prime minister of Israel, gave TBN a piece of land in the middle of Israel to broadcast the gospel all over the world. Hello. Softening like never before, like never dreamed of. So there would be a generation where the Jews would return home. And into that generation, Christ would return. 1948. Now, 1967, the Jews return into their land. Whilst we live. Whilst you live. And yet most of the churches, as I say, either ignorant, lazy, or apathetic. God forgive the end times church. Laodicea, by the way. You can look at the, the lukewarmness within them. And we must not go down that road. So there are the first three steps, and we've looked at them. Point four, we looked at this morning. Into that same generation, the Antichrist will be revealed and we saw a little bit of how that happens in fact you can look at it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him we ask you brothers not to be not to become uneasily uh, unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And that's the revelation to us of the Antichrist. Okay, and that's point four on the, the timeline as we've just spent this day on. Now, I don't know if you've noticed something about modern-day elections. Used to be someone would run for prime minister or president in America, and you know they would choose the best candidate. <laughs> you know, someone with relevant qualifications or abilities. Oh, not anymore. Now they want a messiah. I mean, look at Barack Obama. They wanted everything. This person's not just going to be a president. A president? Yes, we can. You know, and he was going to do this, and he's going to do that, and he's gonna, everything's going. It's messianic. And the world is gearing itself up for the end times, looking for a Christ, looking for a Messiah to come. And as the problems increase, and, you know, good Lord, they are increasing, amen, all around us. As the problems increase, so this craving for a deliverer will also increase. And you can see it in our day. So the next thing to happen, in the opinion of many, and, and, and partly in my opinion, the next thing to happen is that the Antichrist will enter the world scene. And that means that, I mean, because that's the next thing, there's no place for us to be on our laurels in any way. I'll explain why as we proceed. So, point four, the Antichrist will be revealed. Point five, at some point, those who are born again and who are, you know, have the Holy Ghost within them. I won't say spirit-filled because I don't want to go that far. I'm just repeat what I said this morning. The end times church, Jesus told a parable to you. What was it? Ten virgins. Five left behind. 
Now, they were all spirit-filled at one point. They all had oil, all ten. And that's a little bit of prophecy there. Jesus, it's the second coming. You see the bride, the, the groom comes and takes away. It's the second, it's the, it's the rapture, right? And yet half the church wasn't ready for that. Why? Well, because they didn't have oil in their lamps. That was the reason why, okay? So we've got to be very careful about a casual attitude to our Christian lives. There's no place for it. You're crazy if that's how you view your life at this moment in time on earth. Look at 1 Thessalonians, and you'll see Paul talk about this. Talks about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Currently, they estimate there's about one billion Christians on earth. By the time, we, and there's a, there's, a, there's a huge salvation going on around the globe. So we could be somewhere approaching two billion as we start to look to the rapture. So that's the number of people that you're talking about being possibly taken out of the earth. I trust everybody understands what the term rapture means. It's, it's when Christ comes back for his church, as Paul just said there, we rise up out of this earth and we meet the Lord in the air. Okay? Now, for, 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 for times immemorial, we have been laughed at <laughs> and mocked for this. You know? Sounds as if we're a little bit crazy, doesn't it? You know, what's going to happen to you? Oh, I'm going to rise up into the air and meet the Lord in the clouds, you know? They think you're, you know, stark raving crazy. Because it's teleportation, really, is what it is. He, you know, we're going to be deconstructed here and reconstructed in, in midair. Those who, have, who, who are dead and in their graves, are you telling me they're going to be raised to life again? I mean, come on. Christians, I can believe some stuff. Are you expecting me to believe that? And for years, the church has been challenged on these things. However... Critics may be going a little bit quiet these days in light of modern scientific revelations, praise the Lord. The rapture, there's many different opinions. Some people believe, you know, there's seven years of tribulation that are going to come upon the earth. And some people believe the church is raptured right at the beginning before the trouble starts. Some people believe the church is raptured in the middle of the trouble at the three and a half year period that we saw this morning. Some people believe that the church is raptured right at the end, not until Christ comes back, which is actually the, the, the rapture and the second coming are two different events, you see. Well, in my, my opinion, they are. Right? So there's different opinions. And over my time in, in, in studying this subject, to be honest, I've never been able to settle on any one of those three. And even more so now, if, if I had any bias, it would be towards the pre-trib rapture. As God has always protected his people, I believe he will pull at least some the five, right? He will pull at least some out of this place. And that's why I believe the rapture could be at any moment. At any moment. And you know, all my life I've said, well, you see, this has to happen and that has to happen before the rapture takes place. The man of lawlessness has to be revealed. So we've got time. It's okay, relax. Because the man of lawlessness. How do you know the man of lawlessness has not been revealed? How do you know? What happens if something's going on in Europe tonight and you're a bit sleepy and you miss the fact that he's actually appointed? What happens then? I'll tell you what happens. You wake up and half the church is gone. Right? Raptured. 
just as Jesus promised. There's no room for complacency. These things can be happening and, you know, I know one thing I don't know. I don't know. I don't know securely enough or well enough to be lackadaisical about these things. I don't know. You, we, we, Paul put it like this. We see through a glass darkly. And so there's no room for being complacent in these days in which you live. And I fear that that's what those prophecies allude to. That Christ will return. And so many will be found sleeping. So many will not have oil in their lamps. They will have got, you know, cozy in the culture, the church culture of our day. But we have been laughed at for centuries because we believe that the dead who are in their graves will rise up. Right? And they will meet the Lord, be re-embodied in the air right there to meet Christ. We believe that we will be teleported right up into the clouds. And you say, well, why on earth does the Lord have the meeting on the air? Well, it's not the second coming. He doesn't touch down. Important fact. It's only the rapture. He's taking us out. He's not coming back yet. That's another seven years possibly, you see? So he hasn't come back yet. This just concerns the church, the bride of Christ. So he doesn't need to come to earth. Secondly, where are you going to fit two billion people on this planet? There ain't nowhere to have that meeting. There's no place big enough. So you have to have it in the air. Are you with me? There's a very logical thing when you understand the numbers involved and the fact that this is the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. For years we have been mocked, not so much in our generation, praise God, because we've got a lot of scientific evidence to back us up. These gentlemen here, this is Australia, and these guys have invented the world's first teleportation machine. So they have deconstructed the world's first physical particle called a photon, a photon of light, and you can read all about it. It's a long way from Star Trek, but teleportation the disembodiment of an object in one location and the reconstruction of it in another has been successfully carried out by, in a physics lab in Australia. Let me tell you, if a bunch of guys with funny glasses on can teleport a physical substance, are you telling me God can't move us to where he wants us to be? Hello? Come on. If man can do this, it just shows you how near we are to being moved ourselves. And secondly, so you Christians say that the dead will rise, do you? That those who have been dead and in their graves for these centuries are going to come back to life. Give us a break. Exhibit number two. These mice are the, the offspring of the sperm of a mouse that was dead for 15 years. Deep frozen for 15 years. And they defrosted it. You know, pop it in the microwave. Defrost the mouse. They extracted the sperm. Here's the children, the little mice from that. It's almost like a resurrection, but you know, same thing. So if man is doing this in the days in which we live, how close are we to Christ doing the very same thing? In fact, in Genesis, God said, if I leave them alone, nothing will be impossible for them, right? And you can see it, right? Happening right before our eyes. So there's a beginning of a timeline, plagues and wars, the gospel goes around the world, the Jews' hearts get softened, the Antichrist will be revealed very soon, if not already out there somewhere, right? And I believe he's alive, That's my, in, my, in my opinion. The Antichrist would be alive today. In light of everything that I see, he would be alive today, he would be in Europe, and he'll be involved in politics. Okay? And that fits together very nicely with everything that Christ told us and shows us 
all the bits that we were once looking to, now they're behind us, and we're now at the last point. The Jews are home. Gospel's gone round. There's financial chaos. All the things are in place. Now it's time to really, really get ready. Get ready like you've never, ever thought of that before in your life, because that, that's how I feel. Just looking at these things afresh, it, it's just, it's mind-blowing. So we're raptured and we meet the Lord in the air. What happens there? Well, that's point six. That's the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come as a Scot. <laughs> he didn't come as an Irishman. He came as a Jew, right? And that is not without effect at our marriage, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? A, a traditional Jewish wedding is what that will be. And a Jewish wedding, if you know anything about that, it is very, you know, specific steps that they take within a Jewish wedding. First of all, the, the son will leave his father's house. It's Jesus. Leaving heaven, leaving the father. The son will leave his father's house and go to the bride's house. That's the earth. The bride is the church. Picks up the bride and the rapture. Brings her back to the father's house. And there they have seven days of celebration. And so you can see through a traditional Jewish wedding, you can see what is up ahead for those who love the Lord. For those who walk right and keep spirit-filled, stay close to God, you will be raptured and you will go through that typical Jewish wedding. It's not just a wedding feast, by the way. It's also your judgment day. But the good news is, <laughs> it's not judgment for condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are saved. When the bride gets raptured and meets the Lord in the air, we are judged. And that word is indeed used. But it's a different word from is used later in the book of Revelation. We're judged at what Paul calls the bema seat. It's an Olympic term, actually. When the people ran in the Olympics, they would all get some form of reward. And the picture Paul paints for us is that the church is raptured. We meet the Lord in the air. And there he rewards all of us for things done whilst in the body. What we did and what we said. It's not a seat for punishment. It's not a judgment for punishment. It's a judgment for reward. Is there a judgment for punishment? Absolutely. It comes later. You don't want to be at that one. Right? Blessed are those who rise in the first resurrection. You need to make sure that you go up. Amen? Right? So that is point six. We meet the Lord in the air. It's the rapture of the church. And there we have also the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and our judgment, which we, will be for merit. Point seven, there's seven years of tribulation on the earth. Now, it depends what your theology is. If you believe the church goes up at the beginning, the middle, or the end, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, well, it does matter. It makes a massive difference because if the church is, has to go through those terrible times where there are literally billions of people being slaughtered all over the world. What terrible times. But indeed, Jesus says, I will preserve you from those terrible times, you know, lest any man would be able to live and all that. There's various scriptures that allude to that. And this seven years conclude in the battle of Armageddon, as we saw this morning, where the, the nations of the earth conspire once again to destroy Israel, what they've always wanted to do. And as they gather on, on Jerusalem there, that's when Christ returns. That's the second coming, not the rapture. So the second coming happens at that time. All the nations gather 
They start to march on Jerusalem, march on Israel to destroy what mankind has always wanted to destroy, the Jews. This is the great last battle, and Christ returns into this situation. Turn to the book of Zechariah a moment, and you will see that. Zechariah chapter 14 and verses 3 and 4. Zechariah chapter 14 and verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. That's the nations who have gathered to destroy Israel. Zechariah 14 verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand. So he's returned. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. Now, you can imagine Zechariah writing this message all those years ago, having no idea of the the earth's structure or the tectonic plates on which the, the, the nation of Israel was actually sitting at the time. I'm sure all of us know the earth is not solid. The earth floats, the the, the nations of the earth float as plates, a bit like a hard-boiled egg that you tap. And Israel sits on one of those plates. And Zechariah says right, right there that when the Lord returns, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives, the very place from which he ascended. As he ascended, so shall he return. And when he touches down, Zechariah says that mountain will split in two. Now it's just a, a fact. Zechariah didn't know that there was a fault line running right through the Mount of Olives, because there is. Okay, and in fact, modern science, it runs right from, the de- right, right, right from one ocean to the next ocean, splitting through the Mount of Olives in the process and actually releasing the Dead Sea. Modern scientific studies have traced it extremely accurately. Now, there's no way Zechariah could have known that. And what he says is basically... This whole piece of land opens up all the way from the Persian Gulf. He says the mountain will split in two and it goes right across out to the Mediterranean Sea. And in the process, Jesus touches down. The land splits and the Dead Sea, that, is released out of the world's largest deposit of salt. The world's largest deposit of cleansing minerals. We are the salt of the earth. And this is symbolic, you see. It's symbolic of the return of Christ, that that salt would be released. You know, the Jews believe, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah? (laughs) Nobody's been able to find Sodom and Gomorrah. The Jews, you know what the Jews think? It's because it's underneath that lot. Pound it into the ground! (laughs) When God destroys something, he does a good job. And believe Sodom and Gomorrah is at the bottom of that place where all that evil was submerged beneath cleansing salt, destroyed beneath his feet. And to this place Christ returns, just as Zechariah prophesied, yet he had no way of knowing the truth about the, you know, the geography of that land. There is already a fault, as God so often uses natural circumstances. All through history he's done that. And once again, when he returns here, He plows that mountain apart and Christ has returned. And people pass it every day and think, oh, it's just the salt sea. Well, it's a bit more than the salt sea. And you can read on in your scriptures where you see when Christ actually returns in the book of Zechariah again. 
It says he descends off that mountain and he walks up to the east gate of Jerusalem, this gate right here. But Christ finds that gate to be shut because, as, as you know, in the book of Ezekiel, that's exactly what it said it would be. Turn to the book of Ezekiel, if you would. Ezekiel chapter 44 and verses 1 and 2. Ezekiel 44 and verses 1 and 2. This is about the return of Christ right there. It tells us what happened when he approaches that gate. Then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east. That's it. And it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. The prince himself is the only one who may sit inside the gate to eat in the presence of the Lord. He is to enter by way of the portico of the gate and go out the same way. So it was prophesied all those years ago that this gate would be shut at the time when Christ returned. Now, it was actually the Muslims that closed it up in the 1500s. They knew the prophecy. They knew what would happen, that what the, the Christ, Jesus Christ, was, was, was prophesied that one day he would return through that gate. So they bricked it up. And the scripture said it would be bricked up and it's bricked up to this day. But as Christ returns, you can read in the book of Zechariah, he descends off the Mount of Olives, which is exactly the same way he went up. Down he comes. And he walks up to this gate. And the scriptures say there are two guards standing at either side. And they see the holes in his hands. And they say to him, what are those holes, those wounds in your body? And the Bible says Christ responds to them and says, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Or in other versions it says, in some versions, these are the wounds I received in the house of those who love me. And yes, of course, that's the Jews in the day when he was there, but it's us, friends. It's us. It's you and me. We caused those marks. He took our sin, and he's coming to make his home, at least for uh, a thousand years, right here in situ, back in his rightful place as the king of the Jews. You know, Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews. Do you know that? And do you know who the high priest should have been? John the Baptist. John the Baptist's lineage made him the high priest, but they wouldn't let him in. Caiaphas took his place. And the rightful king in the days of Jesus was Jesus Christ. The lineage was his. And the Romans had messed the whole situation up, and the two leaders were cast out, thrown out of this place. It was the devil wanted the land, the Antichrist, right? The spirit of Antichrist wants to hold on to the earth and everything in it. And this is the showdown, the end of time. Point 12. So, uh, where are we now? Sorry. The, uh, the, the return of Christ, point 9. And then you get to, to point 10, where the Antichrist and the false prophet, at Christ's return, when he enters into this place, the first thing he does is he puts the Antichrist and the false prophet in hell. Now, hell is an empty place, by the way, today. There's no one in hell. And the literal heaven that we talk about, it hasn't yet happened yet. When people die, they go to a, a different existence. It's called paradise. Now, Jesus talked to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise, not heaven. He knew exactly what he was saying. Hell is a future place. There's no one there yet. And then we'll talk about this next week. When people die, they go to the realm of Sheol, realm of departed spirits, where they are held. This is one of the most <laughs> hair-raising points in the Bible. And you know what? 
please listen closely. Do you know why there's no one in hell? Because when you go there, you will never, ever, ever come back. And you see, people must face judgment, so they are needed to appear. You see the finality of your God? When he says something, he means it. There's no one in the final hell yet. They're held in, Peter terms it, gloomy dungeons, but it, it's, it, it's remand, really. It's like our legal system. They're held awaiting their judgment. And then after the great white throne judgment in the latter part of Revelation, then they are sent to the final hell, from which there is no return. It just reinforces the finality of our God and how serious he is, right? Scary stuff, guys. So Christ returns, and the first two occupants of the final hell are the Antichrist and the false prophet. So he's come back. Remember, the nations are all out there. People are still walking and going about life. There's been turmoil on the earth, but there's still billions of people alive. Christ is back. And the whole world you know, is thrown into chaos. He's in Jerusalem, right? And we're ruling and reigning with him for a thousand years, right? That's what he promised. You will rule and reign with me. We've come back with him. And the nations are out there. There's confusion. And the first thing Jesus does is takes the, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, his assistant, and puts them into their final hell. But he doesn't do that with Satan. He holds Satan, and he holds him actually for a thousand years. Point 11 on your notes. Satan is actually bound because Satan is needed again at the end of the millennium. The millennium is a term we use to describe the 1,000-year rule of Christ from here, right? From HQ. Because Jesus is back. Remember we were saying this morning, everything God does, the devil wants to do, right? Remember Hitler's dream in Mein Kampf? Hitler was going to have a 1,000-year rule on the face of the earth. It's a type of the Antichrist, you see? The very thing that Christ himself will do. Anybody who has this instant idea of end times, and I've met plenty, oh, end times? Yeah, it's all, boom, it's all over. Well, the rapture of the church is instant in that stance, instant, right? So people are just, boom, they're gone. That is instant. But end times events span a whole huge amount of time, including a thousand-year period. So get any ideas that your mum told you out of your head and start reading from the book itself and all these different places. You'll never understand Revelation without Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These are the books that interpret it for us. That's what they're there for. Right? They were there prophetically to guide us through these times. So the millennium is a thousand-year rule of, 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 of Christ directly from Jerusalem. Now, let me just show you this. Christ returns. Get my timeline why a thousand years? And someone put this question to me once. I don't see why Jesus should have to return and rule on earth for a thousand years. And my reply was, I don't need to know why. I don't need to know why. That's called anthropology. When I, when I start to study man and figure man out for my own reasonings, there's no place for that. I believe in, in, in believing what I read. Right? And the, most of the flaws in theology come when people don't do that. They start, well, I don't understand why that. No, that can't be. Hang on a minute. <laughs> Let God tell you. Just read it like it says. He, and as we'll read it in a moment. He returns and he reigns for a thousand years. says it in your Bible. Now, why a thousand years? Well, 
when God put the curse of death on the human race, on Adam, Adam didn't die physically immediately. Remember? How long did Adam live? 930 years, nearly a thousand years. So the curse of death, when it was pronounced at the beginning, was slow in taking effect. Nearly a thousand years before the curse and the grip of death took a hold of mankind. All I'm saying is, at the other end, it's no surprise that the curse of death is equally slow in being released as Christ returns. And so you've got a, a thousand-year period on the face of the earth. And just another thing about the, the time in which you live, you're alive here at the end of the 2009s, you know, from Adam to Christ was 4,000 years. You can read the begats in your Bible. That's why they're there. You can study all the begats and you can count up all the years from Adam in the garden to Christ came was 4,000 years or four days. But the Lord day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So from Adam to Christ was 4,000 years or four days. From Christ until now has been 2,000 years or two days. It was God who invented the seven-day week, remember? It's in Genesis, not the Department of Employment. God. God said, six days ye shall work. Now hang on, listen closely. Six days ye shall work, and on the seventh day ye shall rest. We're going to have a rest. <laughs> and it will be a whole day. A thousand years. And God will not break that promise. We will have a rest. And you know when we're due it? About now. We've had our six days. And there is one remaining day. There's one thousand year period. Which the scripture refers to as the millennium. Which is due our way. Now, I'm not going to get into all the complicated times and dates and, you know, all this fiasco over the year 2000 and what do they call that thing, you know? It's all a load of nonsense. I, I, I don't think I studied church history at Cardiff University and I can tell you, friends, don't get hung up on dates. Don't get into all that. You'll get all confused. I, I, I don't believe it's that accurate. We don't work with dates. We work with signs and times. That's exactly what Jesus said. Signs and times. And the signs that are out there now are absolutely shocking if you can but read them, if you understand them. If you don't, you'll just live whatever way you want. But if you understand them, there's a need for a holy fear right now. So we're due a day off. The church is due a day's rest. And we're due it just about now. Now, we won't go into the millennium tonight, but the millennium is a thousand-year period of rule on this earth. Remember, you're not going to heaven you're not going, you know, it's not somewhere you go to. Heaven is here. This earth goes through many changes, many forms. It's purged by fire and all sorts of things. But heaven is on earth. God eventually gets his way. The very thing he set out to do in the book of Genesis, he will do. Now, there's an awful lot that happens in between. But he will do that. Right? And that's part of what this is about in the millennial period. Christ is ruling from Jerusalem at a time where you can go through Isaiah, and Isaiah <laughs> walks us all the way through what life on earth will be like during the millennium, right? He says the lion will lie down with the lamb, where carnivorous beasts will no longer be, but nature will be tamed. Remember, all creation fell, not just mankind, plant life, animal life, 
everything fell when Adam fell. And so that's why you don't get this. It was why you have carnivorous beasts. When I got saved, I remember, I walked out of the church I was in, and the clouds, man, they were alive. It's creation. Something in me could see creation like I'd never seen it before. It was beautiful. It was glorious. And a few years later, I heard someone else give the very same testimony of when they got saved, that suddenly they could see creation like they'd never seen it before in its true glory. It was just a glimpse. All creation fell. And part of what happens through this millennial time is Christ begins to reverse the curse, the curse that was placed in the Garden of Eden upon Adam and upon Eve. And you just follow your list. You can go through all these stages. Satan is released at the end, point 13. Satan is released at the end of the millennium. Sorry to say, but he is. And he's sent out into the nations of the world. Now remember, there's still billions of people on the planet. And, you know, this life is going on out there as normal, except that Christ is in Jerusalem and his church is ruling and reigning probably in the same countries that we were in. You're going to be in Motherwell. You see? You're probably going to have responsibility akin to the responsibility you had in the church. Amen? That's, I mean, that's good news for some. <laughs> but you need to take your, your, your walk with God very seriously. The kingdom is about responsibility. And all the parables teach us that, where he would give this and do that, and the landowner would go away, and he would leave them in charge of this and that. The kingdom is about our faithfulness in keeping the responsibilities given to us by God. Right? So take your ministries so seriously that it has eternal consequences that begin in this millennial period where we will find ourselves doing tasks, fulfilling things in the nations for Christ. You know, ambassador at large, overseas. I believe we'll be in the countries probably that we're already in. For God determines the times and the places in which people live. Turn to the book of Revelation itself. A moment, chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I know I've given you a lot of information there. It's all here. It's just when people read it, either they don't believe it or can't believe it or whatever. I'll start at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. But the beast, Satan, was captured, and with him the false... Sorry, that's the, the Antichrist. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and had worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now the original language is hell, okay? The rest of them were killed with the sword, and came out of the, uh, that came out of the, the mouth of the rider on the white horse, and the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now just believe what you read as you start reading chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss, and holding in his, his hand a great white chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He didn't put him in hell, see? He threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. 
And that's what I was sharing earlier. You can go forward to chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them in, uh, for battle. In number they are the, like the land on the, uh, the, the sand on the seashore. And on and on and on and on it goes. It, it, it's, it's shocking, friends. Absolutely shocking. It's all there in black and white. More accurate, as they say, than tomorrow's newspaper. So Christ comes back. He puts the false prophet and the antichrist in hell. He holds Satan for a thousand years and then releases him into the nations of the earth. And for some reason, salvation is, is a great gift. Even though people must be crying out for it in this time, for some reason some of them don't seem to get it or they're easily deceived. Remember, if you're saved, it won't affect you because you'll be part of the church at that time. But there are nations in the world and Satan goes into the world and deceives one-third, same as he did in the original heaven, deceives one-third of the earth's population and gets them once again to march on Jerusalem. Here we go again. But Christ destroys them and they're all thrown in to the lake of fire, it says. So point 14, Satan himself is put in hell. Point 16 is the final, uh, sorry, point 15, the dead are raised, and you can read about that. It's called the great white throne judgment. These are those who weren't saved over all previous generations. And there's the second judgment, and this is a judgment for punishment. As I say, you don't want to be at that judgment because there's no way back from it. And then the earth is burned with fire. The earth is purged by fire. And the new Jerusalem, so much spoken of, the new Jerusalem that Jesus has been working on for 2,000 years, comes down out of heaven. They estimate it geographically. It's about the size of Europe, you know, going by what the Scripture says. And it comes down out of heaven, and now it lands on this earth, which it becomes then, it's in, I can't remember which chapter, but it says, Behold, now the dwelling of God is with man. You come to the conclusion then, and then and only then, do we enter anything that we call heaven, or anything that we actually call eternity. So don't get a, a simplistic view of end times, because it's not simple, I'm sorry, but it isn't. Paul said there are many things in the Bible that are complicated, and this is one of them. But don't let that rob you. Don't be lazy, don't go to sleep, but be like a Stephen in the book of Acts, who in the last days, just before he died, he knew where he'd come from, and he knew where he was going. And that this, more than any other day, you must know where we're going, amen, and communicate these truths to everyone you meet in some way, shape, or form. You don't have to go through all that, but people can pick up from your spirit, right? They can pick up faith in you. They can pick up belief in you, and you just start to digest that and eat that. Get it in your system and be ready to live in the end times. Be, you know, honorable, worthy of the calling to which we have been called in these days, amen?